My name is Amy Pachenko. I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. It's the DWP and many fans, the finest Doctor Who podcast in existence, and today we are going to be reviewing a few of the uh, recently released classic series DVDs in our own DWP, nearly award-winning stock. Yes, it's another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. Welcome, one and all, and thank you for joining us as always. It's a full camper van this week. Tom and Trevor both with me. Hello, guys. Hello. 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 Now, have you finished arguing? Well, I I, I I would say we're not so much arguing as stating facts, and I say that as a scientist. Um, yes, it's we're not really arguing. We're just enjoying a, dis- a friendly discussion. Yes, a, a, a very, very deep-spirited, passionate discussion amongst fellow podcasters. Wow. <laughs> Entirely so. No, it's, 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 been, it's been quite fun. It's, it, as long as we understand, of course, that I'm always right and Trevor's always wrong, then there's no issue. Well, I think the most consistent message that comes out is that Tom always believes he's right at the end. I think <laughs> that one you can bank on. But yeah, absolutely fantastic listening to you two guys. And I have to admit, I, I mean, you probably both feel the same. Whenever you're not in a camper van and you're listening to the other two, you always want to chime in and get your opinion in there. And I found myself, particularly of late, because I've been away quite a bit, siding with one of two of you and it doesn't always have to be Trev although it has it usually is I have to say but uh, (laughs) but last time I found myself rooting for Tom I I certainly agree that Inferno has more going for it than Genesis of the Daleks so I I can't disagree there but um, I I lean towards Trev uh, when he was talking about the one long story Um, I'm, I'm not as with Trev, uh, as, as I am with Tom about the Inferno issue, though, I have to say, I think it's one long story, but it's mm. a different programme. And there is no comparison to the way Doctor Who is made now, as you would expect, really, to the way it was made in 1963, or indeed even 1996. But the story itself and the format has just evolved and changed. And Tom... You were a bit sneaky the last podcast. Why? <laughs> you, because you had what you were able to successfully argue was that everything changes and stays the same, which yes. means you couldn't be wrong. <laughs> um, yep, because yep, yep, everything yep, yep. changes and stays the same. So that was uh, quite a good argument, I have to say. And I, I could just picture you in the House of Commons selling a bill and everybody going, you know, the guy's right. Um, <laughs> fundamentally disagreeing with everything that you said. <laughs> I, I, I think I think under English law, I'm not actually allowed within 50 feet of the House of Commons. But, you know... <laughs> Now, if only that was a joke, listeners. Anyway, oh, we, yeah. <laughs> we got some brilliant feedback uh, on the last couple of podcasts that have contained spirited debate. So without any further ado, let's go to Dave, who I believe is in some southern county, very green one, I think, called Kent. Hi, guys. Dave Morgan here in Kent, and just wanted to thank you for your last geek out. A few things sort of uh, sprung to my mind. Firstly... TV's changed. I mean, it used to be that four 25-minute episodes would have made a story. Now we can do it in 45, although, as you know, I sometimes think that we should be doing it over two episodes, two 45-minute episodes. 
and I think in those days you could get away with what could now be termed padding. We've seen some attempts to try and reconstruct stories. I'm thinking the Black Guardian trilogy of DVDs. Um, more successfully, I've just watched the uh, Day of the Daleks, which I thoroughly enjoyed the, the sort of new effects and slightly recut story. I'm going to be very her heretical now. Why not maybe get somebody, maybe from the current uh, team on the TV, to actually recut, say, five of the best regarded stories and uh, completely recut them, Murrigold music, the whole bit, and see if you can put them out on TV. No doubt that will upset some people. Just a thought. Also, underrated stories or stories that you forget about. Well, I've just been listening to you in the car and I've come into the house and I'm sitting down and I'm going to watch Survival. Uh, one that I think ties in really well with the start of the new series with Rose. The way that you've got somebody who's been reported missing and coming back to the sort of hometown. It's all very parochial. So that's what I'm going to sit down and watch now. Cheers, guys. Yeah, thank, thanks for your feedback, Dave. It, it, really, really interesting. Yeah, TV has changed, I suppose. And really, I, I suppose what we talk about as padding in the classic era doesn't really exist in the modern era. I mean, there are still instances there where people can disagree with um, you know, the way the story's structured and its pace and stuff like that. But the way padding is defined in the classic era is very different to how you would define it in the modern era. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. I loved your uh, suggestion for the forgotten story, Survival. That would be one that I would mention as, as one of the Sylvester McCoy stories that really doesn't get a lot of attention. Everyone knows the long speech the Seventh Doctor makes at the end of that story about bus shelters and burnt toast. The speech you mentioned was only written and dubbed on once the production team knew it wasn't going to get another series. So it wasn't part of yeah. the original script. I, I only really enjoy survival looking at it in the context of the new series because I draw a lot of parallels between the way Ace was used and the way that Rose was introduced. And also you're seeing essentially what you can retcon as the cat people in Gridlock and New Earth and so on. And... Uh, Looking at it as a single story, then it suffers from the worst possible piece of stunt casting that John Nathan Turner ever did with Hale and Pace. The story is so unbelievably slow for me. Dave's idea about recutting some of the classic stories has already been done by two entertain on a couple of Fiona Cumming directed stories, Planet of Fire and Enlightenment. And I know that um, our And the views... Curse of Fenric. Oh, and the Curse of Fenric. I... Yeah. No, I think that was in, not recut. In, in a certain way, Curse of Fenric has extra scenes in it. it it's not what we would term recut yes. in the yes, essence that true. the two Fiona Cumming stories are. Mm. Yeah, okay. it, it's had a different treatment. It's, I mean, the Curse of Fenric mm. is now more like a movie, yeah. whereas um, I think Planet of Fire and Enlightenment have been recut in order to reflect the way modern Doctor Who is made. And yeah. depending on your point of view... You know, the success is, uh, well, either it's a success, and it is in my view, or it's a complete abject failure, which I seem to remember. Uh, Trev leans more towards that view. But I I wouldn't like to see any of the new team tackle old Doctor Who, I think. I don't think it would happen anyway. But I, I just think it would just end up as a bit of a mess. And when you look at something as brilliant as, as Enlightenment was in its trans transmitted form, 
to have someone who had actually nothing to do with the making of the original story recut it and redub it, I think it'd just be a mess, to be honest. But at the same time, a fresh pair of eyes uh, and a fresh mentality, given what is undoubtedly strong material, can sometimes reinvigorate it. I mean, I'll be honest, I quite liked the take on Enlightenment. And if I'd never seen the original, I'd think it was nice and pacey. I'd, I'd, I'd still enjoy it for what it was. I mean, because I'm a, a geek, I watch them back to back. Uh, and I, I, must, I did actually prefer the cut down version of it. It was far more... Um, what I remember the story to be and to be honest one of the reviews we've got coming up is Day of the Daleks so we can have this discussion around that DVD as well but yes let's move on to our second piece of feedback this comes from the well other side of the world really this is Louisiana which apparently is in America hello Doctor Who podcast this is Donald all the way from Louisiana Uh, I definitely had to chime in with some feedback on your latest discussion is this one big long story or is it separated uh, I think this is excellent. I, I can't necessarily say that anyone's right or anyone's wrong. The way I look at Doctor Who, uh, same way I look at life. You know, uh, like you guys were discussing, are you the same person 10 years ago? Not really. I mean, think about it. Uh, there's your surroundings might be different. You might drive a different car. You have different personality, a different outlook on life. The people you surround yourself with are different. You may have a different job, a different place of living. Your parents might be dead. You may have a new father figure, a new mother figure. Uh, I mean, there's tons and tons of variables here, uh, but I look at Doctor Who the same way, you know? It's not the same face of the Doctor. Uh, different people around him, different settings, uh, different TARDIS. Uh, all these things are kind of integrated into the show to mirror life. Uh, that's what I get out of it. But, but at the same time, I do see a, a definite a difference between, uh, say, the original run the television movie and uh, the new series and I think what this difference is is so that fans can come into the show uh, say in the RTD era which is where I actually came into the show so uh, in order for me to experience the the full Doctor Who I would have to go back and, and watch a lot of the old stuff which I have done and I honestly after watching the, the new series it's kinda hard to go back like you guys were talking about you have to have a different mindset to enjoy them uh, you have to almost put yourself in that era, which is hard for me because I wasn't even born uh, until the late 80s. So uh, it's kind of hard, but I definitely think that, that, that those separations are there for people to come in and say, well, you know, new who is my who. Uh, the way you guys feel about old Doctor Who, uh, our original Doctor Who, uh, is how I feel about the new Doctor Who. It's what brought me into the series. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to tiptoe around it. There's a lot of hate for RTD. And, uh, and some of the stuff that he's done. But that's how I came into the show. And honestly, I love it. I wouldn't trade any of it. I don't have any complaints. Uh, I think it's great. So I'm going to stop talking, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. The main thing I took away from Donald's feedback there, and, and thank you, Donald, for sending that in, mate. He's really picked up on, I think, the way that us three feel about the classic era compared to, well, certainly the way Donald feels about the new era. We three here, sitting in the camper van, have a very unabashed, unapologetic love of the classic era. Mm. At the end of the day, what I'm hoping is that those who are new converts in the last six years to the show go back and discover where this all started, where this, as Tom says, one big story really began back in 1963. Go back and check out some of the fantastic stories that are there because you don't have 2005 without 1963. Hmm. I I think that's two different approaches to the same debate really uh, as we were saying before i think it's pretty much unquestionable that 
we are where our past has led us. In other words, Doctor Who is where it is now because of what happened back in the 60s, 70s, 80s and so on. Doesn't necessarily mean it's made exactly the same way for the same audience. And I think that's the reason why you've got things like uh, relationships and emotions being so much more at the forefront of the story now uh, as opposed to being practically non-existent uh, back in the 60s and 70s. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that television evolves as well as everything else and the way people like listening and consuming their stories changes. And Doctor Who would be very, very silly not to adapt to that over the years. What's, what, what I think is very, very clear, though, is, is with Doctor Who, the central concept. Now, that really is up for um, debate, if you like, by the production team. Do they want to keep the show about what it was in 1963, i.e. Uh, a lonely man traveling for whatever reasons in a blue box or do they want to kind of demystify it and for me what they've done throughout the years is is toyed with that concept sometimes the, the doctor's mysteriousness is at the forefront of a story sometimes it's at the very back and it's just a romp and what yeah. i really value and appreciate is that modern day doctor who both rtd and stephen moffat have prioritized the three or four core things that were just as important in 1963 in the 21st century classic era dvds it's been so long since we've had a chance to sit down and talk between the three of us about classic series dvds and there are so many that have come out while series six has been on the air um, we want to focus on two this particular episode. The first one we want to talk about is the seventh Doctor story, Paradise Towers, which I do believe has been out on DVD for uh, quite some months now. That's the first one we want to have a uh, bit of a bit of a talk about today. Right. So, Paradise Towers, a seventh Doctor story featuring Sylvester McCoy as the Doctor and Bonnie Langford as Mel, first transmitted in October 1987. Now, it could be argued that this show, uh, this particular story, sorry, demonstrates everything that fans at the time were beginning to find a little bit tiresome about the show. It's very uh, high colour, the dialogue is very... The show doesn't seem to quite know what it is or where it's going, but I have to be honest, I really, really like it. What they were striving for was a show that would have long-term appreciation. And it was really fascinating for me to watch it recently. I think I watched it about two or three months ago now when it came out, um, to watch it. And I enjoyed it a lot more as a 40-year-old Doctor Who fan than I did as a 16-year-old Doctor Who fan when I watched it initially. Because when I watched it initially, you know, you're a 16-year-old, you watch Doctor Who, you watch it to be impressed. But what you get is a story with some quite ordinary... Uh, special effects, some very ordinary model work in terms of the uh, cleaner droids, uh, lots of talky, very, at the time you could perceive as very hammy performances, certainly by Richard Briers. But watching it now, the, you know, the story blossoms a bit for me because you can see a bit of the subtext there. You can see what the production team were trying to achieve back then. But, you know, it's, it's taken all this time for me to appreciate it. Do you know, I, I get the feeling that the last few Doctors were shamefully underserved. I think Sylvester McCoy did very, very well to, to make the character his own in the time that he had. But like Colin Baker, like Paul McGann, I don't think he got the opportunity which, which, is, which some of his other predecessors had been accorded, which is to let 
a character breathe. I mean, the show was under huge pressure at that time um, to actually be new, to get to have more viewers. It was a confusing time, it was a sad time, and it was uh, an unfortunate period in Doctor Who's history. But that's not to take away from some of the production values and some of the performances. McCoy was finding his feet in the um, in a way that all of the other actors did, with the exception possibly of William Hartnell, I suppose, um, and having to make his, and having to make his character under some very strenuous conditions and. A lot of people do point to this doctor, this doctor companion pairing, uh, McCoy and Langford, as not, as not being one of the best. But I've got to say, I, I do like Bonnie Langford. In hindsight, she was a lot better oh, than I remember. Terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I quite like Bonnie Langford. And I, and I really enjoyed um, her performances in the Big Finish uh, stories as well. But I'm afraid that there are certain Big Finish stories that I can listen to. And it makes me go back and listen to... Oh, sorry, it makes me go back and watch the TV stories and appreciate it in a new light. The character of Mel is not one that's benefited. I, I think it was incredibly cardboard. I mean, she her character was not served well in any possible way. It's it, it, is, it was stunt casting, as far as I was concerned. And she didn't really make the most of some extremely poor lines that she was given. I mean, you look at this story that we're talking about now, Paradise Tower, she's got the whole universe... Uh, at her disposal, pretty much. Yes, the Doctor may not necessarily have as much control over the TARDIS as, uh, as she would like, but where does she want to go? A swimming pool. Yep, and so, well, there, should be, there should be one of those in the TARDIS, actually. Well, <laughs> yes, precisely, uh, unless it's been converted into a library or whatever, but I, I think it's ridiculous. That's casual writing, as far as I'm concerned, and you also mentioned the fact that McCoy wasn't necessarily best served. I mean, I think the guy did have three entire seasons to evolve and develop that character which is considerably more than someone like Colin Baker had uh, he had uh, one interpretation of the Doctor for one series and then he wasn't allowed to play that character again for a year and a half or however long it was and I mean Paul McGann yes he will always be the George Lazenby of, uh, <laughs> of, of Doctor Who's but I, I, I can't help feeling that McCoy could have made a lot more of it and I, I think there was enough intelligent people involved in making Doctor Who at the time not to make it in the ham-fisted way that resulted in Paradise Towers. That, that's, not to, that's not to say that I didn't like the story, and I'm very, very much in line with Trev in terms of watching it now and appreciating it more. Um, when I watched it when it was broadcast, I, I, I remember thinking, this is absolutely terrible, I'm not going to watch Doctor Who again, and I didn't. I didn't for some time. I think I may have caught the last episode of the Happiness Patrol that just reaffirmed um, that I, I shouldn't be watching this anymore. Um, but I like the Kang speak. I think that is not as simplistic as it first appears. Uh, if you study the use of the language that Stephen Wyatt comes up with in Paradise Towers, it's very interesting. And I, I think he's put a lot of thought into developing the Kangs. I don't think there's such an obvious political alignment as everyone keeps talking about, you know, red, yellow, blue being the three colours of the political parties uh, in, in the UK. I think that's probably people trying to make it more sense than, than it actually makes. But the, the worst performance for me by far uh, was, was Pex and uh, a chap called Howard Cook, I seem to remember. It was, a, it was a poorly written character, I think, didn't have a huge amount of influence over the way the story went and his death was utterly unmoving to me and completely unnecessary um but but aside from that then i actually enjoyed catching up with paradise towers but uh and, and tabby and tilda ha huh, i thought they were brilliant and uh, i i love the reference uh to, to them within night terrors that we saw recently 
I, I would have to strongly disagree with uh, Howard Cook's um, character of Pex in this. Pex is a specific character in my notes that I mentioned that is one that developed most from when I watched it in 1987 as compared to three months ago. I saw a lot more there watching it recently than I did when I was 16 years old. Uh, I've really enjoyed you know, the, the, the very tragic feel that um, Howard brought to the Pex role. Um, it, it's interesting on the DVD they, they make quite numerous mentions to they originally perceived the Pex character as being a very Arnold Schwarzenegger um, muscled up type person and they were actually actively trying to cast a very, uh, I suppose, bodybuilder type person. But I think it's inspired that they went for someone like Howard Cook who isn't a, a muscle-bound moron. He's an ordinary guy who has, I suppose, subconsciously thrust himself into the position of being the uh, Paradise Towers hero. I mean, it, it, it's a wonderful story to see now, knowing what I know about, you know, the history of Doctor Who and, you know, the way the world works in general, I suppose. Um, you know, Pex is a, is, is a triumph of a character. Oh, I, I don't think he's ordinary by any definition. He's, he's shallow. I don't think he's well written. I think he's cardboard um and again i don't necessarily well I, well I am not necessarily slating the performance i suppose i just think it's the way the character was was written and, and the role that he had to perform within the story wasn't engaging for me um i want to offer an australian perspective of this guys if i may um bonnie langford as far as certainly an australian perspective is concerned she has no baggage um when she came on screen in Terror of the Vervoids, which is uh, which is another story we should definitely talk about one day. She she was just another companion. She wasn't she was the next companion in the list. She didn't have any of the baggage that the you know the U of K listeners to the show might have about her. That she is a you know pantomime actress. She's had various negative or uh, positive publicity in in the U of K. Because I mean I I suppose it might be difficult for you guys to separate Bonnie Langford. From Mel to a certain extent. Mm. Well, that's that, that's an, that's the English malaise, or at least that's certainly a Doctor Who malaise. I mean, I know a couple of very very great uh, Doctor Who fans whose opinions I respect, who don't seem able to do that. They still see some of her child acting parts. They still see some of her uh, adolescent acting parts before they see what she did in Doctor Who. And you know, when it comes down to it, she's a very distinguished and very well-experienced actress, to be honest. Um, and Doctor Who is just one of the many things that she did. But because she was so well-known in the UK, I, I, I'm not convinced that um, some, some of, my, some of our, my, the other fans uh, give her the benefit of the doubt in that respect. And I'd like to think that I do. And so from that point of view, I enjoy what she did. But, you know, that's just me. Well, I, I certainly do. I, I can make the distinction between character and actress. And mm. I, I think I'm not, I don't mean to be insulting. About no, that. I'm but not saying people are thick. No, you know? I understand that. But I, I think I think you're also right. I think people do come to um, casting decisions uh, with a fair degree of baggage. I mean, you just look at Catherine Tate, and uh, that, that, that's one thing where I think it was so clearly wrong because I think she was a brilliant, brilliant companion. But but Bonnie Langford, you take everything away from her past, you know, everything that led to her role, and she still delivered a very cardboard performance as far as I was concerned. Um, and I do think she is experienced, but she wasn't experienced then. She's experienced now in terms of performing and acting, and I mm. think that's the reason why she's so compelling and convincing and listenable uh, within big Finnish plays that she stars in. Well, Mel and Pex and other sort of characters aside, 
the the DVD itself for Paradise Towers, if there's one thing I came away from this DVD was um, a greater appreciation of the writer of the story, Stephen Wyatt. Um, it, it was great to see him uh, as part of the commentary team for this story. Um, he was involved with many of the extras that are, are featured on this DVD. And it, it was really interesting to hear his insights into where he... Um, I don't know what he called it, homaged or plagiarized or, or just deliberately stole uh, uh, st story ideas from uh, other sci-fi mediums. It was Brazil, wasn't it? Yeah, the whole thing was based on a story called Brazil. And it, I mean, I've never read that, <laughs> so I've no idea how, how much it does take from the story. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I found it interesting. Um, not not overly interesting, but I found it a, a good use of 25 minutes or so. One of the things that I would suggest to entertain is not to use Mark Ayers again um, in order to interview people because I don't think it did anything for the format. Every now and again, the cameraman cut back to Mark Ayers who was nodding at what the interviewee was saying. And I, I, I think, yes, it's a different format and it's a different style, but it didn't freshen it up at all. Um, so I wasn't overly convinced of the need uh, for Marquez to take such a leading role. Well, I think it's true to say that we've discussed pretty much everything Seventh Doctor era or early Seventh Doctor era, not just Paradise Towers itself. Uh, but would I recommend people go out and take a look at this story once again on DVD, then I think the answer would be yes. Um, how about you, Tom? I'm pretty certain you're with me there. Um, if, it's, if it's a question of find something that represents the Seventh Doctor, I would say no. <laughs> I would say no. Wanna, you're just being contrary now. <laughs> uh, well, I've, okay. Is it a good story? Yes. Is it, a, is, it a, is it a set of strong performances? I'm not sure that they're all consistent. Is it the best representation of the Seventh Doctor and Mel? I don't think it is. I think people should probably invest in it for Richard Bryars alone, who we haven't spoken <laughs> about. But anyway, <laughs> ah. let's move on. Okay, well, it's a well-known fact that every Doctor must face his greatest nemesis. And Day of the Daleks was the first time that John Pertwee came face to face with the evil Pepperpots themselves. Uh, now, this particular DVD is rather special because what we've got is the way the original story was released. But then we've also got uh, a recut of the story where Nicholas Briggs, even he of the new series, has re-voiced all of the Daleks uh, and there have been some extra effects added to the particular show as well. And I've got to say, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, it could be argued that what I remember of seeing of seeing Doctor Who when I was, was when I was a child is is bigger effects, better effects, a, a super glossy presentation that really didn't take place because it had the added of the added advantage of my imagination. And what we've got with Day of the Daleks on this particular DVD release is the benefit of hindsight, and as much as as it's really been polished and it's really been spruced up. I, I think I probably agree with most of what you said. I, I would like to add something. It's not just been recut and had new special effects; it's had brand new sequences filmed. And that's yep, in yep. modern day. They've had people dressing up in old Ogron outfits. They've been recording new sequences to make certain that the, the well, orderly house as it is, looks like it's actually coming under some kind of credible threat as opposed to a couple of dustbins on wheels and one bloke dressed as a monkey. <laughs> so it's, it's now completely been reanimated. And I, I, I agree with you, Tom. Uh, the story itself is 100% better for it. Having said that, I was always a big fan 
of, of Day of the Daleks. It was one of the very first stories that I remember having a major impact on me uh, that made me think, oh, I want to go and watch some more uh, Doctor Who's. And it's mainly because of the time travel element. And I, I really enjoyed it. It doesn't make any sense at all within the context of the way time travel is handled in the series now. But for me, I just didn't care. And it's it's funny you two were talking about padding uh, during the last podcast and I think one of you, I forget which one of you now, actually used the character moment where the Doctor sits down basically on the ghost watch uh, with a glass of port and some, some cheese. I love those kind of scenes and for me there is mm. a distinction between character defining scenes and padding and I would have said that is definitely character de- defining. You see the relationship between Joe and the Doctor well, it, it's just at the very end that I finally get it. You know, and, and literally in the final scene where the Doctor's standing out in the open with the wind blowing through his hair, looking very heroic and talking straight down the camera. It's, I, I totally get it. That's what that Doctor was supposed to be. He was supposed to be James Bond. I just didn't, I just never quite saw it before. Um, but, but I think between Inferno and Day of the Daleks, I get the Alpha and Omega of what that character was supposed to be. Day of the Daleks is a fascinating hotspot for me re-watching the DVD. On the one side, it's why did they do that with these new special effects to a certain extent? And watching it again, it's not the same story I remember when I was a kid. It's a fascinating mixture of, um, for me, misfires with the special effects. I did not enjoy the transitions between modern day events and the futuristic setting. I didn't enjoy all the uh, CGI buildings that they threw into the story. When I watched it in the 70s, I didn't have a problem with the voices being different. Sure, you know, the director Paul Bernard got it wrong. Mm. The voices are different to every other Dalek iteration we've ever heard Mm. in the entire history of Who, but when I was a kid, it didn't really matter. It was just a Dalek story. And even they say during the special features, oh, you know, every Doctor Who fan knows the Day of the Daleks' voices are terrible. But when you're really honest, when you're a kid, does it matter? Does it really matter? It's only with adult eyes when you look back at it and go, these sound different to the other 40 years' worth of stories I've seen. Um, Does it really matter at the end of the day? Well, if it doesn't, then you can watch the original version. You know, this this is the one thing with the Day of the Daleks and what to entertain do. No one's forcing anyone to watch a new version of it without having the option of watching it as it was transmitted. So I I think if you look at it as a reimagined you know, version of the same story on a limited budget, it works incredibly well. And if it does, if it does challenge, you know, um, your interpretation of, or, or your memory even, um, of how you enjoyed this story first time around, then I, I would say don't, don't watch it. That's, that's what makes me so split in my opinion of this reimagining. I, on, on the one hand, I'm thinking, why bother? And I'm really coming around to the opinion because I've, watched Day of the Daleks reimagining and thought, well, I didn't really enjoy that. I didn't really enjoy the extras they tried to put on it. The other half is saying, yes, let's do it, because Day of the Daleks isn't that good a story to start with, and it needs the special effects to help it along. I, I, I disagree on, on both counts. I, 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 obviously, it's subjective, but I, I think this is one of the best John Pertwee stories there is, and I think the reimagined version of it is fantastic. I was so looking forward to this DVD uh, being released. I love the way Nick Brigg, Briggs absolutely lives Nails Daleks. It. Yeah, and he, he just does it so well. 
One of the great things about Day of the Daleks DVD is, of course, we talked about one of the huge extras, which is the retelling of the story with modern effects uh, and some recut scenes. Um, but, of course, there is the usual raft of quite fantastic extras. We've got the making of documentary. We've got the phenomenal Barry Letts uh, taking us through some of the unsung heroes of Doctor Who production, in particular the vision mixer, whose role is absolutely critical in terms of what gets brought to us on the screen. Um, oh, yes. Mm, mm, what, did, what did you make of that extra? I, I, I love that. That, that. that, for me, I watched that, and that was my favourite ever Barry Letts um, contributed extra for a DVD. Him sitting down in one of the studios that they would have filmed Doctor Who in and actually talking about, you know, the way they um, edited and produce Doctor Who. I mean, for me, it was a revelation that basically this vision mixer guy was the one responsible for what we see on screen, that it wasn't a case of six or five cameras sitting in the studio recording and then the, uh, you know, the director choosing later on what uh, would be on screen. Mm. The vision mixer really seems to have an integral role in the, you know, the final cut. Whatever's recorded in that final recording session, you know, an hour or two hours or three hours, determines what we see on screen at the end of the day and also, by definition, what we see on the DVD. I mean, you, you know, the vision mixer, to me, is, is a kind of default director. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the relationship between uh, the vision mixer and the director could be said to be the same as the, res uh, the relationship between uh, perhaps the writer and the script editor in as much as both are intrinsically as having a huge effect on what actually makes it into production. Uh, aside from that, Again, as I keep saying, we are spoiled. We've got uh, some nationwide footage uh, of a school receiving a Dalek delivery. Uh, we've also got uh, a couple of great extras about the unit family and, of course, the unit dating conundrum, uh, which I will leave to any, anyone who buys the DVD to have a, have a look at and come back to us on. I don't want to sound weird, but it's like there's been somebody else here. Did one of you leave the keys in the door to the camper van? I have no idea. Oh, I can only assume it's Trev. He's always leaving the keys indoors, just like Sophie at the lodger. Anyway, <laughs> I think this is an appropriate time to introduce you to two new voices on the Doctor Who podcast. Well, saying they're new, they're not quite new. For those of you who are members of the forum, they almost certainly would have come across Ian and Michelle before. They're our DWP forum moderators. Yay. And as you say, Tom, they seem to have broken into the caravan and taken over the recording equipment. Well, they may have broken in, but I've got the time-space visualiser here, so if we just adjust the controls, maybe we can find out what they were talking about. Here we go. Ah, 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 ah here we go. Ah! Hey, Michelle, look, over here. It's the recording equipment. Oh, let's give it a try. Uh, I'll be Trev. Hmm. Don't you think you should do that with an Australian accent? Actually, I'm lousy at accents. You know who does great voices, though? Who? Katie Manning. You should listen to Find and Replace, a companion chronicle Big Finish released in September 2010. Actually, I just have. Joe Grant finds herself stuck in a department store elevator with an alien creature called Huxley, who's a narrator from Verbatim 6. It's really a story about thinking back to that time of your life that was the most special and, and exploring whether you could ever recapture that time or what would happen if someone tried to steal that time away from you. I understand that you're fairly new to the Big Finish ranges, so maybe we should get your perspective. Yes, um, I've only recently started listening to Big Finish, and this is actually the first companion chronicle I've listened to. I thought it was quite a mixed story. I loved 
the first uh, few minutes, the intro is so pacey. The way it goes, this hustle and bustle of, of Joe doing the shopping. Uh, in fact, it reminded me of the opening of Rose when Billy Piper's character was, was running around the centre of London in the department store. Uh, and then it just, almost in a second, drops you straight into the action without any jarring at all. Going from this very noisy sh- shop into this quiet lift and then this creepy story just appears out of nowhere. And I loved the conceit of the narrator, the way it was switching from Katie narrating to an in-story character. It's a lovely, lovely trick and I really enjoyed it. Huxley is a character that first appeared in a companion chronicle uh, called Ring Pull World, uh, and there he was paired with Turlow. These novelizers, of course, latch on to people with interesting life stories, uh, and with their mind-reading abilities, they're able to narrate your life as you're trying to live it, uh, which tends to be really annoying for the characters in the story, but I find it really funny for the listener. And uh, Alex Lowe, who played Huxley, I think plays that balance perfectly. Yeah, I, I thought it was it was a great character. I really enjoyed. Well, at least I really enjoyed him at first. Once the Iris stuff came along, I, I, again, I understand Iris is a regularly recurring character who I've not encountered before, and I wasn't massively taken with her. To be honest with you, she I, I could imagine her coming out of a Harry Potter film, but it didn't seem quite right in Doctor Who to me. And to be honest, after that, the way the story went and going back and seeing the the Unit HQ. I didn't think it lived up to the promise of the introduction, and Huxley's character seemed to change as well, from being quite an in-control, commanding, and very interesting character into a very passive, reactive, almost whiny character towards the end. And I, I, I was, I thought that was a shame for such a strong character, such a strong opening. I didn't think it quite delivered through on the promise of the beginning. Iris Ryletime is an over-the-top character. I think Huxley describes her as a trans-temporal, adventurous, extraordinaire, and Joe simply calls her a a mad old bat. And she's certainly irreverent. If you're used to your Doctor Who being fairly straight, this is a a character that's going to take liberties. Funnily enough, one thing that did occur to me later on was when she was going around the unit base, uh, knocking out unit soldiers with her perfume spray uh, and flirting with them, I was reminded of River Song, which I was not expecting and rather strange. But um, I thought there was a certain, I'm sure, coincidental similarity there in their sort of modus operandi. Yeah, I would tend to think River Song has a, a little more class. <laughs> what Huxley is doing as a novelizer with Joe is telling her that her memories of her time with the Doctor are false. And instead, she spent her time traveling with Iris Wildtime. And towards the end of the story, of course, we figure out the motive behind that deception. And I have a hard time believing the motive. So... In that way, it kind of lets me down at the end. Another thing we should mention is that Iris Wildtime is a character that has been brought to life by Katie Manning. And so in this production, she plays Joe, and she plays Iris Wildtime, and she plays the third Doctor. She's a delight to listen to. I thought her portrayal of the third Doctor, which is a tough ask, was actually quite believable. I, th- I totally bought into that character being the third Doctor. There's a point earlier in the story where Joe is reminiscing about the doctor and remembering the feel of the velvet of his sleeve as he would take her hand and help pull her away from danger time and again. And I thought you could hear Joe Grant remembering the doctor, but you could also hear Katie Manning remembering John Pertwee. Mm. The way Joe looks back on that time with such fondness and wanting to go back there and wanted to stay there and how wonderful it was and it was the best time of her life is actually slightly jarring since she chose to leave. She kind of says, obviously I like my life now, but... She's clearly looking with very fond eyes on on the times past, and I find that difficult to gel with 
her choice to, to walk away from that. Well, I suppose it, it, it's, it's probably a, a human reaction to have second thoughts, but um, I don't know. But it was it was tied up in a neat bow in the series, and it uh, seems a bit odd to go and pick at it. As far as kind of an overall impression of the story, I really enjoy this one, uh, even though I, I I don't agree fully with some of the choices they made towards the end. I think it's worth it for enjoying Katie Manning's performance all the way through. The character of Huxley, like I said, I really enjoy the novelizer concept. There are a couple cliffhangers at the end that, that leave potentials for more stories for Huxley and more stories for Joe, both of which I would love to follow up on at some point. I certainly enjoyed it. It was a, a good, enjoyable audio. I was glad I listened to it. Uh, I... I was slightly disappointed that it didn't live up to the quality of the first five or ten minutes. If, if the whole show had been to that quality, it would have been outstanding. And as it is, it's it's good, but not 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 as outstanding as it could have been. One last thing I wanted to mention: uh, look up the Katie Manning podcast on the Big Finish website. Like all their podcasts, it's free to download, and it is absolutely hilarious. I- Ian, I think someone's coming. I guess we better get back to our assigned laptops and lawn chairs in the DWP forum out under the annex next to the front door of the campervan. Awfully nice place to discuss all things Doctor Who. And there's always room for more members. Right then, back to work. Okay, Ian, Michelle, wonderful review. Thank you very much indeed for the time that you spent listening to the play and talking about it. I have to say that was one of my favourite companion chronicles and I would recommend it to anybody. Iris Wildtime, if you haven't heard her before, Yes, she is a bit of a shock. She's slightly (laughs) different to the kind of companions we expect to hear from in the Doctor Who universe. But for me, I think it shows how fantastic an actress Kate Manning is. And I love the character that Paul Moss created anyway. So it was a good story for me. Uh, do you know what though it's it's fair to say that for anyone who's met katie manning i think iris is slightly closer to who katie actually is you'd be right yes <laughs> <laughs> ah, no, she's phenomenal she's absolutely phenomenal absolutely. woman ian and michelle will be back in the near future to help us review some more big finish and if we're lucky perhaps we can get them into the show proper or at least get something going between the uk and the us if we can do it between the uk and australia i'm pretty sure we can make that happen all right from a truly worldwide edition of the Doctor Who podcast. We'll mm. say we'll be back this time next week. Do we know what we're discussing, guys? Um, no. Nah. no. Excellent. Make sure you tune in <laughs> this time next week. <laughs> Bye for now. It'll be good. It really will. Probably. Bye. Take it easy. Bye-bye. That was the Doctor Who podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.